Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Hear the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I was getting ready to teach a Bible study on a section in Revelation, uh, one of the letters to the churches, and uh, a man came, he didn't normally attend the study, but he came up to me before the study, and I appreciated him greeting me, and and he mentioned that he had attended Princeton Theological Seminary. And uh, then he was in the, the, the lecture, or the, the Bible study, and then right after, his hand shot up. And I called on him, and he said, I have a question about the Greek word behind the word a crown in the text that you taught on. Is it steranos, which is the, uh, the word for the victor's crown, or is it... Diadema, which is the Greek word for the kingly crown. And I have to say that I am better at preparing and teaching than I am at fielding questions. (laughs) And uh, so I began my answer by at least mildly insulting him, (laughs) which wasn't my intention, but thinking back on it, I think that's what it did because I said, I don't think it makes any difference. Because, and then I went into a little mini discourse about how language functions and how context determines the meaning, not so much a dictionary definition. Then I realized I wasn't answering his question. And so I said, oh, but yes, your question is, which of these two words? And I said, I don't remember, but I think it is diadema. Well, I went home and I looked it up and it wasn't. It was Steranos. And I thought, well, the next time I, I get to see him, I, I can say I, I was wrong and I, I, just, I, I needed to go back and look. I shouldn't have just shot from the hip. I, I didn't remember. But I never saw him again. 
He never came back to the study. And thinking back on it, now I think I know what was happening there. I think he was testing me to see if I knew my stuff. And I'm guessing that he might have known himself which Greek word was behind the word crown in our English translation. And I have to say, I don't really blame him for not coming back because I failed the test. Jesus faced this sort of situation all the time. But he, of course, did a much better job in answering these questions, some of which were malintentioned, and some of which seemed to be honest questions seeking truth. We have that situation here where an expert comes up and tests him. Now, in verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer. Now, in this translation, that's how it it translates that, and that's an older translation as well. But when we think of lawyer, we usually think of an attorney at law. And so this may not be the best translation for our context because it signifies something to us other than what this man was. He was an expert in the law, but not in civil law. He was an expert in the Jewish law. He was an expert in the Old Testament law. So we uh, we might translate it, an expert in the law or a teacher of the law. And it says that this expert in the law showed some deference to Jesus. It says that he stood before Jesus, and it says that he addressed him with an honorific title. He called him teacher. And so he recognized him as a teacher. But it says that he did this in order to put him to the test. Now, here is an expert in the law, and here is an itinerant, unauthorized teacher from his perspective, in Jesus, and he is going to, as a part of the official religious establishment, someone who has studied the laws and an expert in the law, he is going to put him to the test to see if he knows his stuff in order to see if this one who purports to speak from God really is as well informed as he should be. And so he asks a question. But his question is actually a a practical question. It's a very important question for all human beings to ask. Sometimes we find people asking theoretical questions of Jesus. Sometimes we find people asking silly or, or uh, complicated trick questions of Jesus, trying to trap him because there's, they think no right answer. And one answer will get him into trouble with this group, and another answer will get him into trouble with that group. That's not the kind of question we have here. We have a very good question, and a question that concerns all of humanity, a practical question. And the question is this, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Would you agree that if there is such a thing as eternal life, that it concerns all human beings to know how we may inherit eternal life? This, uh, this expression, eternal life, shows up for the first time in the Old Testament quite late. Quite late. It shows up in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 says... And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting or eternal life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. 
Now, this is a new expression in the Old Testament. You won't find this anywhere else in the Old Testament. Everlasting life or eternal life. And you also find in this same text a, an explanation of the resurrection, which is not so clear uh, throughout the Old Testament. But as we get towards the end of the Old Testament, and Daniel is towards the end uh, of the Old Testament period, we find these these concepts that are they're coming into the fore, eternal life associated with the resurrection in the future, and that some would rise to eternal life and others would rise to uh, everlasting contempt. Now, this concept became very important in Jewish theology. They took up this, this teaching of Daniel and they developed this idea of eternal life. And so it was a, a question for them, How do we have this eternal life in the resurrection? How can we participate in this life of the ages, in this everlasting life, this life without end? And you also find in the teaching of Jesus that this concept of everlasting life or eternal life is very, very prominent, especially especially in the Gospel of John. It's a, it's a repeated, it appears in all of the Gospels, but especially repeated in the Gospel of John. Now, uh, Jesus, when he was asked this very good question, he answered the question, as he often did, with a question. And if we go back to our text, it says here, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, on the one hand, this looks like deference on Jesus' part, doesn't it? Because he's saying, You're, You are an expert in the law. You're a teacher of the law, so you tell me. You study the law, how do you read the law? What do you find in the law? And so on the one hand, he's putting the man in the driver's seat to answer the question, but on the other hand, he just switched places with the man, didn't he? The man came to test Jesus, and then with one turn, Jesus now has asked him a question, and he will get to evaluate that man's answer. Well, the man did very well in his answer. The man in his answer expressed the best of Jewish theology of the day. And he did something that was quite remarkable. He combined two texts from the Old Testament. He combined Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and the, the verse from Leviticus that we read earlier, Leviticus 19.18. Deuteronomy 6.5 is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And he combined that, which is something Jews would repeat daily, he combined that basic declaration of of, of, uh, the faith of the Old Testament with love your neighbor as yourself. Love for God, love for neighbor. Now, that was a very good answer. And it was actually the answer that Jesus himself gave when they asked him the theoretical question in other places in the Gospel, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he added another one. A second one is, Love your neighbor as yourself. So this man answered just as Jesus answered the theoretical question. And so Jesus affirmed his answer. And he said to him, in verse 28, You have answered correctly. So now Jesus is the one passing judgment on his answer. But he passed. He said, You have answered correctly. And then he said simply, do this and you will live. 
Now this, do this you will, and you will live, uh, comes from an Old Testament text, Leviticus as well. If you look at Leviticus chapter 18, verse 4, it says this, I'm sorry, verse 5, it says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So the principle is, if you do these laws, these statutes, you shall live by them. Now, in the original context in Leviticus chapter 18, it's talking about living in the land, the land of Canaan, the promised land that the Lord was going to give to them. But in Jewish theology, they had extended that out, combining this with the idea of the the resurrection, combining this with the idea of everlasting life. They had extended this principle out to refer to life forever, everlasting life. And Jesus affirmed that extension here, didn't he? The question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he named the, the top two commandments that summarize all the other commandments. Jesus said, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. That is, do this and you will have eternal life. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, you will inherit eternal life. Seems like end of discussion, right? But the lawyer was perturbed, apparently, about something about that, that conversation. And he wanted some further clarification. And what he did was, he asked Jesus a follow-up question. The first of the two commandments is pretty clear, isn't it? Love the Lord your God with everything you are. The second may require some definition. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so he follows the question with another question. Who exactly is my neighbor? Now, would you agree that that's an important question? If having eternal life depends on loving your neighbor, isn't not important to know who your neighbor is? And so it's a reasonable question, but we find here that we know something about his, his motive. In verse 29, it says, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, this, this motive, justify himself, could mean one of two things, or perhaps both. Maybe he felt kind of stupid because Jesus had made such quick work of his question. He, he made it look elemental, didn't he? He made it look simple. And so maybe the man wanted to justify his question and say, now wait a minute, the question is not that simple. And so he followed it up with another question. Maybe that. Or it may be a deeper question of justification, self-justification. And that is that he wanted to justify himself before God. And in order to do that, he had to love God with all that he had and was, and he needed to love his neighbor as himself. But in order to justify himself by loving his neighbor as himself, what did he need to know? Who's my neighbor? Because I need to know in order to do this so that I can justify myself before God. And so, Jesus, in answer to that question, by the way, that question assumes something, doesn't it? It assumes that there are two categories of people in the world. There are neighbor and there are non-neighbor categories, right? It assumes those those two categories because he's, he's expecting now Jesus to say, who's in this category? 
whom I should love, and then, by implication, the people that aren't in this category, well, I don't need to worry about loving them, and I can still fulfill this command. Now, Jesus, Jesus responded by telling him one of the most well-known parables of all Jesus' parables. It's the parable of what we call the Good Samaritan. Now, this parable is unlike the other parables that we've seen so far. The other parables that we've seen so far are riddles, are representative parables where the elements of the parable stand for something else. Do you remember, for example, the parable of the sower? And it said, he, Jesus said, the seed is the word. That is to say, the seed stands for the word. This parable is different. This is not a representative parable where the elements stand for something else. What does the man who was by the road stand for? Nothing. He's the man by the road. What does the Samaritan stand for? He's a Samaritan. What does the priest stand for? He's, he's a priest. So uh, the elements are not to be interpreted by looking for their correspondence. It's actually the story as a whole is an exemplary parable that sets before us an ideal example to follow. So it's a different nature, uh, of a different nature. Now, this parable is placed on a rocky, deserted, steep descent from Jerusalem, which sat higher, and Jericho, which sat much lower. And over some 17 miles, it descended uh, very steeply. And it was subject to banditry. It was known as being a dangerous way. And there were many priests and Levites who lived in Jericho. And so it was normal for priests and Levites to go up to Jerusalem to do their duty and then to go down from Jerusalem to Jericho. What's the difference between a priest and a Levite? Priests were Levites as well. That is, they were descended from the tribe of Levi, one of the sons of Jacob. But they were also descended from Aaron, the brother of Moses. And because they were in the priestly line, they offered sacrifices in the temple. They had, the, let's say, the important jobs uh, in the temple. The Levites were their brethren, but they also worked in the temple, but they didn't get to do the sacrifices. They did more of the menial work uh, to keep the, the tabernacle and the temple going. So both temple workers, we could say we could rank them. They were the, the highest ones, the priests, and then the, the next ones after that were the Levites. Now the story is easy to follow, and I'm not going to, to walk through all the details. It's, it's like Jesus' parables. It, it stands on its own. Uh, it's easy to follow the flow of it. But I do want to point out a few of the aspects that are intentionally surprising and some of the misdirection that Jesus gives us in his telling of the story. The first thing that we should notice is that this man who fell among the thieves, we know nothing about him. Zero. The only thing we know about him is that he was beaten up and left there wounded and naked. That's all we know about the man. That is curious. That's curious. Because supposedly, this parable is to define who is my neighbor. But this man has no defining characteristics. We know nothing about him. That should pique our curiosity. Keep that in mind as we get to the end of it. 
The next thing is how Jesus set up this story masterfully. He used repetition. So the man falls among the thieves, beaten and so on, and left half dead. And then three men come along. And Jesus used repetition here as a, as a, as a master storyteller. Came, saw, acted. Came, saw, acted. Came, saw, acted. So this repetition. Now, he also set up the first of them by an expression that we don't find anywhere else in the New Testament. By chance. By chance. If you look at uh, the man who fell among the thieves, and he was left there. And look at verse 31. It says, Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. To this day, to this day, this is how we set up a story of rescue, isn't it? If we read that a man was, uh, was his, his motor went out on his boat, and he was swept out into the Gulf Stream, and then we read that By chance, a Coast Guard cutter was going by. What do we know? He's going to be saved. And so, Jesus sets it up for us to expect that the priest is going to help. And so, we're rather surprised when the priest comes, sees, and he passes by on the other side. And then the Levite comes along. And now we think we're on to Jesus. We think, okay, now I think we're going to have another surprise, but he's not going to surprise us this time. I'm going to guess that the Levite's not going to do anything either. And we're right. But now we're ready for the resolution of the story. And we're thinking, okay, he's going down in the ranking, the religious ranking in Israel. So first we had the priest, the highest one. Now we have the Levite, the second highest one. Now we're going to have a layman come along and save the day. And the story is going to have a moral of an anti-clerical story. So the, the clergy didn't respond, but the layman responded. Or we might think, okay, the humans didn't respond. The best of Israel didn't respond. God's going to intervene with an angel who's going to save the day. Or, we might think, no one's going to save the day. If the best of Israel didn't save the day, the man's going to die, and it's going to be a rebuke to the hardness of Israel. We might have some of these ideas, but nothing, nothing in the story prepares us for what Jesus says next. The next verse, verse 33, there's no good way to do this in English, but the first word in this verse is Samaritan. It's, it, it would go like this, Samaritan, but a certain one. So he leads with this word, Samaritan. Now that's surprising, even shocking for a couple of reasons. One, what's the Samaritan doing between Jerusalem and Jericho? Not unheard of. If he was a traveling salesman, a traveling businessman, not unheard of. But we don't find Samaritans normally around there. Not impossible, but it's a, a surprise. But there's something even more surprising, and that is the antipathy between Jews and Samaritans. Jews had a tendency to despise and detest Samaritans. They considered them half-breeds, not fully Jews. And they looked down on them and on their inferior faith and their inferior race and their inferior practice. In other words, Samaritans would not 
naturally fall into the category of neighbor. They would fall into the category of non-neighbor. And so we have the Samaritan, and we have the pattern. Do you remember the pattern? Came, saw, and twice we had came, saw, passed by on the other side. Came, saw, passed by on the other side. Came, saw, and had compassion. Had compassion. And this is the turning point of the story. That this Samaritan had compassion. And his compassion was an extraordinary compassion. He, he went to the man, bound up his wounds, applying the remedies of the day, oil and wine, set him on his own beast of burden, took him to the inn, took care of him there, and then left money for him. And different scholars have calculated how many days or weeks that money would have lasted according to the prices of the day, at least some days, possibly some weeks. And then in addition to that, he puts himself on the hook. And he says, any other expense that this man has, I'm good for it. I will take care of it. Of it. An extraordinary level of compassion for a stranger, this Samaritan shows. Now that's the story. You're probably familiar with the story. But then we get to the end of the story where Jesus now answers the question with another question. With the story being an interlude, and now he answer he asks the question about the story. And he says to the lawyer, the expert in the law, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now that question is interesting. And the story is fascinating because it didn't answer the man's question, did it? What did the man want? The man wanted to know who is my neighbor to whom I should show compassion to whom I should show love. But Jesus turned the whole question on its head with his question and didn't answer the question, who is your neighbor? He answered the question, who acted like a neighbor? Not who is worthy of your showing love, but who acted in a neighborly way by showing love to the man, this anonymous, nondescript man who had such a terrible misfortune. The... The expert in the law, once again, gave an excellent answer. Very astute. Although it's pretty obvious, isn't it, to figure out. He said, the one who showed him mercy. Now some think that he couldn't bear to say the word Samaritan, but, but perhaps more likely, he's identifying the essence of neighborliness here. It says, the man showed compassion And this is what stuck in the mind of this expert in the law. He said, that's how you identify neighborliness. Someone who acts like a neighbor is one who shows compassion, one who shows mercy. And now Jesus, concluding the conversation, for the second time tells him to go and do it. He says, you go and do Likewise, Now, this might have been a bit galling for the man, the expert in the law, to be told to go and imitate a Samaritan. But out of his own mouth, he had identified this Samaritan as the one who showed neighborliness. Now, 
the lesson for us is the exact same as the lesson for the expert in the law. And that is, um, rather than trying to figure out who is worthy of your love, rather than trying to figure out who is worthy of your compassion, you should turn the question around and ask yourself the question about who is going to be the one, or rather whom you are going to be, to show compassion to others. Not whether they're worthy of your compassion, but what kind of a neighbor you are going to be to those who are in need. Now this is, this is actually magnified in our case, right? This man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he knew about one man who was assaulted and harmed. And if we keep up with any sort of news media, about how many people do we know daily who are in need? We know about hundreds or thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands or millions of people who are in need. And so this command is, if anything, magnified because of our knowledge of the need. And so the command is, is huge. It is enormous to be a neighbor. Not to question who is my neighbor, but to be a neighbor to anyone who is in need. And if we tie this back to the original question, we can bring it all together. If you want to inherit eternal life, this is what you need to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, and all your strength, and love everyone who is in need. And show them compassion. And you will inherit eternal life. Now, if that leaves you uneasy, as it left the teacher of the law uneasy, that's good. It should leave you uneasy. Because I think if uh, you or we have grasped the the nature of this command, we immediately see that it is not a command that we are capable of fulfilling. It's not even even leaving out social media. Even if we just take the 21% of Pompano Beach that lives in poverty, even if we limit ourselves to them, or even if we limit ourselves to the, the homeless people that we encounter on the street regularly, even if we, we limit the focus of our compassion, even at that, we find that it's not a command that we are capable of fulfilling. And so where does that leave us? Where did that leave the the teacher of the law, whom I'm guessing was, was scratching his head after this conversation and asking himself, what just happened there? I went to test this itinerant teacher, and now I'm, I'm left with a, a responsibility that I can't possibly fulfill. Where did that leave him? Where does that leave us? It leaves us going back to Jesus. It leaves us seeking Him once again. That we might say, Jesus, I understand this command. It's more than clear for me. But I find that I'm not able to do this. Is there any hope? Is there any help for somebody like me? And now, Jesus gives us the answer. And this is where the Gospel of John comes in. And He says, do you want eternal life? 
and you recognize that you're not able to justify yourself before God by fulfilling these commands perfectly, then I have good news for you. That God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have what? Eternal life. And John is shot through with that message. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes the one who sent me has what? Eternal life. He has passed from judgment into life. So if you look at these commands and see that they are incapable of being fulfilled by a mere human, you need to look again to Jesus because we find one human, one human who fulfilled these commands perfectly, who loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, and with all of his strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself. And he loved his neighbor to such an extent that he laid down his life for his neighbor. That, my friends, is our hope. When we find that the the good and perfect and beautiful law of God calls us up short, we go back to Jesus, the keeper of the law, the perfect expression of God's compassion, of God's mercy to sinners, and we place our trust in Him that we might have eternal life. Now, sometimes we stop there. And if we stop there, we may be blunting the the message of this text. And I hear a number of sermons that are not wrong. They are perhaps just a bit incomplete. They go like this. This is what God says you should do. You can't do it. Jesus did it. Rest in Him. And that's a glorious message. And that is the message that I just preached to you. So hear that message and believe. But then, don't stop there. Because this text tells the teacher of the law what to do then. And if we have received God's compassion, if we have received God's mercy mercy through faith in Jesus Christ, how much more reason do we have to go and to do likewise? Let's pray. Our God, Your law is good. It points us to You and it points us to our neighbor. To love You and to love our neighbor. And we thank You that there is one man who fulfilled that law and having fulfilled it, ended on a cross and then rose from the dead three days later. So that all who trust in Him might have that that sought for everlasting life, that life of the ages, that life of the resurrection. Lord, we long for that, even as this teacher of the law longed for that. And I pray, O God, that You would grant that to all of us as we place our trust in Jesus, the source of that eternal life. And having received that life, having received Your compassion, having received Your mercy, I pray, O God, that You would enable us to go and do not only like that Samaritan did in this fictional story, but go and do like Jesus did in showing compassion to neighbor. And we pray this in His name. Amen.